You're listening to the Holistic Lifestyle Guide Podcast, the show that guides you on your holistic lifestyle journey to a healthy body, mind, and soul aligned with nature. Hello and welcome to episode number 63 of the Holistic Lifestyle Guide Podcast. This episode is about autism spectrum disorder, and the reason why I'm doing this episode is actually because I was diagnosed with this a week ago. A week ago today, actually. So I wanted to do an episode about this because I have become aware that there is not a lot of information out there when it comes to adults with autism. So a lot of people have been led to believe that this is something that only young boys can get. And they've also been led to believe that it is something that you can actually get. But in contrast, it's actually something you're born with because what it is is a brain neurotype. And this is just a different type of way that the brain works. And this can happen to anyone of any gender and you don't even grow out of it. So all of these children that have been diagnosed with autism become adults with autism. And as I'm about to go into, um, it's very, very undiagnosed very very commonly so like there's a lot of women out there and girls even that have not been diagnosed because for various reasons and i'm learning so much about this and i'm learning that there's so much misinformation out there but there's also so much that needs to be explained about it in order to make people understand the whole picture so it really, it's going to take a whole new podcast, which incidentally I'm going to make um, at some point. I plan to branch off a little bit and kind of focus on that um, a little bit. So in the future, I might not be able to do as many episodes for Holistic Lifestyle Guide since my focus is going to be changing, um, but that's another subject. But basically, this episode is going to be about autism spectrum disorder. I'm going to dispel some of the myths and explain how it affects adults, not just children, because I'm sure if you know any autistic children, you know how they are and you don't really need to be told more, but it's a different story when it comes to adults. It's a very nuanced thing. So let's just keep this simple. This might be a long episode though, so I'm, I'm going to try to be succinct, but <laughs> it's actually a trait of autism to talk a lot about a subject that you are passionate about and knowledgeable about and so and to go on tangents as well, which I'm horrible at. So <laughs> bear with me. I'm going to I'm going to work through everything and hopefully I won't go off on too many tangents. So I'm going to keep I'm going to start off with the definitions of what these words mean because that's going to help a lot when it comes to the rest of this episode. So the word autistic actually comes from the Greek word autos. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, but it's spelled A-U-T-O-S, and that means self. So another name for this is also neurodivergent, although not all neurodivergent people are autistic. There's a, a map that I've actually put on my website. I'll leave a link down below to the blog post where you'll see this map that talks about neurodiversity. And basically all this means is different types of neurotypes, different brains. And I'm going to explain what those mean. But basically the autistic person is focused on the self, 
on in their in internal world. And these people can come off as being selfish and not considerate of others. And as you'll find, and I'm, I'm going to explain, it's not like that really. It's just the way the brain is. And so the opposite of autistic is allistic. Now, you probably haven't heard this word. This allistic comes from the Greek word allos, A-L-L-O-S, and this means other. So allistics are people who are not autistic and they are neurotypical people. So they're the majority of the brain neurotypes that most people are and their focus is on others and on the outside world. I'm gonna go a little bit more into what those mean, but um, like I mentioned, I'm gonna have a map on my website, on the blog post that I'll leave a link to so that you can see it's like a Venn diagram. So there's a big circle of that encompasses everyone. Everybody is neurodiverse as a group, um, as a collective. So you have typical neurology, which is the neurotypical person, which is most of the people in the world. And then branching out from there, you've got, now this is where it's a little bit complicated and I'm not quite sure how to explain this, but there are different levels of overlap where it gradually, it kind of weeds out more and more people. And so they, it goes from allistic to autistic. And basically, like I said, there's neurodivergent people that are not, not all of them are autistic. There are a lot of neurodivergent traits though that some allistic people can have. So that's, I'm kind of talking in circles there. Just go check out the map that, so you can actually see it. So now I'm gonna talk about the facts that you need to know about autism spectrum disorder. And these are just gonna be the most important things that I think people should know about this. So what it is, is a cluster of traits that vary with each individual. Many people mistakenly think that the spectrum goes from mild to severe, meaning that those on the mild end only show a few symptoms and then those on the severe end show a lot of symptoms. But in reality, there are different categories of traits that encompass the spectrum. And people will show different sets of traits in different categories. In other words, Every autistic person is uniquely different, although the majority of them share many commonalities. And again, I have a chart on the blog post that shows this um, in visual. So for people that like to learn visually. So it's, it's not a linear arrow of a spectrum. It's not like you're a little autistic and you're a lot autistic. It isn't like that. It's that there are like I said, a lot of categories. And I'm gonna be going through these categories to explain what they are. And some people are going to have maybe one or two things from one category and maybe 10 or 11 things from another category. And so that's why everybody is different. So the next one I'm gonna talk about is that autistic brains are not broken, they are just different. And a lot of people think that autism is a illness which I'm actually gonna go into next, but, but basically we're just different. Many autistic people feel like they are broken in some way. And this is the first clue. If you're an adult listening to this, and if you're an adult woman particularly, if you have always felt that you were broken in some way, 
if you just didn't fit in with the world, you knew there was something different about you, but you didn't know what, then this is a good sign that you're autistic. Um, so this myth is perpetuated by the majority of people who have neurotypical brains and the society we live in, which conforms to the majority. So if you don't fit in with the majority, if you are a nonconformist, there's a good chance that you are a neurodivergent person, possibly autistic as well. So neurodivergent brains simply operate differently. This makes autistic people appear strange or weird simply because they are in the minority. Not fitting into society only makes them appear more broken. And this is a horrible sign of the world that we're living in that so many people feel broken and strange and weird when really they're just different. So now I'm going to go deeper into the thing I mentioned earlier that autism spectrum disorder is not an illness or a disease, therefore it cannot be cured. And this has been a controversial subject. Many people claim that autism is caused by something in the child's external environment after they are born. In reality, it's a neurological developmental condition, meaning the brain develops in utero to be this way from birth. It's no different than people having just different personalities. You know, some people are left-handed, you know, things like that. It's just the way that the brain develops. And I'll, I'll make a note that they have not actually been able to pinpoint one specific cause, but they know that it's genetic. A lot of ch a lot of children have autistic parents, and if you are an autistic parent, you probably, or I mean, if you are if you are an autistic adult, you probably will pass it along to your children too. It's genetic, and. So there's other things that might be involved as well, but that's it's not my place to go there. I'm just going to explain what this is all about and, you know, the, the practicalities of this. So the next thing that is important to know is that autism is considered as a disability by the American Disabilities Act. So by getting a diagnosis, a child is able to receive support to help them navigate life easier. This is what is ideal, but unfortunately, many people slip through the cracks um, that have autism and they, they live much of their lives undiagnosed, as was the case with me and many, many, many thousands of people that are learning that they are autistic as adults. So anyone with autism is legally entitled to reasonable accommodations in school, if they're in college or university or whatever, or the workplace, which can be helpful. However, from another thing that I'm learning is that a lot of workplaces, uh, they just make it hard. And so work is hard enough for autistic people. And when places don't help us in that way that we need to be helped, it just makes it worse. So it's, it's a tough thing and I'll end it there. So the next thing I want to talk about is how girls and women are underdiagnosed. This is due to the, the criteria for the spectrum disorder was created with young boys in mind because when they, they first noticed this in young boys, of course, because boys present autism traits differently than girls on a general, general sense. Girls also tend to fit in better with neurotypical people. Um, girls are more apt to use masking, which is another name for 
suppressing autistic traits and pretending to be normal. Um, so this can lead to anxiety and depression and burnout if it goes on for too long, which is usually how people end up finding out that they're autistic because they struggle with all of these other things, which I'm going to go over in the next, um, the next thing I'm going to talk about is that. But if you mask for too long and you end up burning out, you end up finding out that you have anxiety and depression, but you can't figure out why. And that's how people get diagnosed with autism when they find out that it was all caused by that. So the good news is that more and more adult women are now being diagnosed as as this is as the awareness is becoming more widespread. And as I'm learning that there are a lot of advocates for this, um, and I'm one of them now, so it's very important that we spread awareness about this so that people don't have to suffer anymore. So the next thing I'm going to say is that people on the spectrum often have other coexisting mental health conditions. Like I just mentioned about anxiety and depression, autism goes hand in hand with a lot of these mental health disorders, including ADHD, um, PTSD, delayed sleep phase syndrome, I learned, which is interesting because I have that as well. Um, also Tourette syndrome, bipolar personality disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and some other ones. So living with an undiagnosed autism will cause anxiety, depression, and it's even traumatic. It can be traumatic to go through life being treated differently without knowing why. And this, this is what leads to masking, which as I mentioned earlier, it's very detrimental to the well-being of the autistic person. Masking seems necessary in the short term to cut down on bullying and teasing, but it's not good in the long run. And that's what leads to more anxiety, more depression, and burnout, and just an exacerbation of all of the autistic traits. So now that's a great segue into the next section where I'm going to go over the common autistic traits. So there are too many to go into here, but I'm going to try to break it down into the most common, the main categories, and then give a few examples of in each of these categories. So the first category I'm going to talk about is social difficulties. This is one of the first, sometimes one of the first times that people notice that their child is different when they are forced to go to school and be among other children or even preschool or even playing with other children before they're of school age. So the, some examples of this is struggling to make friends, maintain friendships, preferring to be alone rather than with others. Remember how I said autistic means it's uh, focused on the self and allistic is focused on others. So if a child prefers to play alone, that's a sign. And also not feeling comfortable in large crowds or events. And this carries over into adulthood as well. Um, so you can be in a large crowd or event if, if, if you're not too overly stimulated by the, the sights and sounds of these things. However, it doesn't mean that it's super comfortable. And if you reach burnout, like I did, it will start to become too much and there will be certain situations that you can't be in anymore. So not feeling comfortable in large crowds and events 
is one of them. And then not feeling comfortable speaking in a group. And that means anytime there are three people or more, then that's where it becomes a problem for autistic people. Um, because speaking one-on-one -on -one is a whole different thing from speaking in a group. And I could go down a rabbit hole with that, but I'm going to stop myself there. Um, so the next example of social difficulties is not feeling comfortable playing sports or activities with groups. So there are solo activities and solo sports, and then there's group activities and group sports. And this is just another extension of preferring to be alone. So um, there's also a thing of parallel play, which is where children like to do something with other kids, but they don't want to do it as a group with other kids. They want to do it on their own next to another child that's doing it, but not like where they're needing to work as a team. So that's something that is also an autistic trait. Um, so if, if you're horrible at sports, you don't like being in a group, you know, another thing is you were picked last for teams in school, that's a sign as well. And also this, um, this last example, uh, avoiding intimacy. Um, that doesn't apply to everyone because autistic people can and do form relationships and can be intimate, but this is also another common trait that they avoid in intimacy. So the next, the next um, category I'm going to talk about is information processing. So here are some examples of the differences of information processing between an autistic and a normal person. Uh, I was going to say normal person, I should say allistic, but you know, not too many people know that word. So black and white thinking, you might know what this means. Um, this basically means it needs to be this way and no other way, or I, you know, I, this is always going to be this way, or this is never going to be this way. It's not flexible thinking. And I am pretty bad at this, and this is a trait of autism, so... The next one is being overwhelmed by lots of information. And an example of that would be um, reading, where it's not broken down into little easy to read bites. Um, it, this can go auditorily as well. Like even just walking into a room where there's a lot of people talking, there's so much information. I mean, there's, there's 10 conversations happening at once. There are things to look at. There are noises happening. That's just a lot of information. And our brains get overwhelmed very easily. So if that happens to you, you could be autistic. Um, we notice details that others don't. So autistic people are really good at finding the, the details and, and piecing them together and, and looking at them as, um, you know, do they make sense? Do, you know, we're, I'm really, anyway, me speaking personally, I'm really good at investigating details. So down to the, such a minute, a minute detail level that I can tell when something's wrong. I can tell when something's off. I can tell when somebody's lying. I can tell when their story's not making sense. I can tell when something isn't right about the whole picture because there's a detail missing that I don't even know is missing until I find that it's missing. And that's just something that, neurotypical people probably won't pick up on as easy. 
Uh, autistic people also need a lot of time to process information before responding. This is a common one. And this applies to things like um, why we don't like talking on the phone because that involves being quick. You know, they're saying something, you got to say something right back. There is no time to process. And so we prefer email. We prefer um, needing to know all of the details about something before we make the decision to do it. So that's all about information processing. So the next category is sensory processing. So this one's going to be kind of interesting because there's a lot of examples and a lot of people experience these. Now here's where I'm going to say that there is something called sensory processing disorder, I believe it's called, and that can be separate from autism, but uh, people with autism almost always have some sort of sensory processing difficulties. So let's go with this list. Here's some examples. Hypersensitive to bright lights. And this is a big one for me. I'm, I'm going to try not to keep this personal, but I can't really help it because, I mean, I got my experience when it comes to these things so I can say what it's like. So being hypersensitive, hypersensitive to bright lights basically is, it's like a worse, a worse version of, you know, not wanting to be outside in the sun, only it's like, you know, I need to have the sunglasses on. I need to be in the shade. I can't stand standing in the sun. I can't see. And then bright lights also translates or carries over to electronics. Oh, this is a big one for me. When somebody shoves a phone in my face and they have their phone setting on their display bright as it can be, I can't. I can't look at it. It hurts. I have to look away. I'm like, how can you stare at that? So bright lights, if they bother you, you're not alone and you might have autism. So the next hypersensitivity as far as sensory is, this is a common one and this is loud noises. So I'm going to say first here that this does not necessarily include music. Loud music is amazing and a lot of um, autistic people agree, but there's a whole separate reason for that and I'm probably going to go off on a tangent if I let myself. So I'm just going to keep it to erratic loud noises and repetitive loud noises that are not necessary in the background. So if there's some sort of like a, a high-pitched whizzing, whirring, what's the word, sound where it's coming from the distance, we will hear it and it will bother the crap out of us. And other people will probably not hear it. Also, like I said, repetitive noises, dogs barking, car doors slamming, even people talking outside in the in the neighborhood is annoying. So that's something, and you know, a lot of people are going to hear this and say, well, I don't like those noises either, but that doesn't mean I have autism, which is true. That doesn't mean you have it. It's just something that we are hypersensitive to, and they're not going to diagnose somebody with autism based on one trait anyway. So this is a, you got to look at this as a whole. The next one is being hypersensitive to certain smells, tastes, textures of food, fabrics, anything, like I said, it's all sensory. So, um, you know, smells that bother you so much that you might get nauseated or get a headache. Um, textures of food. There are some things that, you know, if it's in your mouth and you don't like it, you, you cannot keep it in there. <laughs> it's, not, it's not something you can just force down. 
And fabrics is a big one. This is a really big one for autistic people. A lot of people are known to cut the tags out of their clothing. A lot of people are known to not be able to wear jeans. Um, I've had uniforms at jobs that were absolutely horrible for my for the feeling of them. I couldn't hardly stand wearing the outfit, and let's just say I didn't last long at that job. Um, so, you know, basically it's things that are tight, things that are scratchy, but everybody has their own preferences, so it's, it's a personal thing, it's an individual thing. Another thing that you can be hypersensitive to is is the opposite, actually. The opposite of, of hyposensitivity, I'm sorry, I'm saying this wrong. The opposite of hypersensitivity is hyposensitivity. And this is where you need more stimulation of the senses, where you can't, and you know, you can have both. I have both. Where you can't just sit and not move and not look at anything and not hear anything. You need something all the time. And this is a common thing in even neurotypical people, because I think a lot of this is being addicted to stimulation to the point that you can train yourself to need it. Um, and that could be a part of it too. So the, the last example of a sensory processing difficulty would be that you need lots of downtime alone to recharge after being around others or being exposed to overstimulating environments. Uh, this is a big one. Um, if you, and you know, this kind of sounds like introversion, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, if you are neurotypical and you identify as an introvert, you probably you know, you want to do these things, you do these things, and you have fun doing these things, and then you get home and you're like, oh, I'm happy that I'm home. I'm happy that I'm alone and enjoying my peace and quiet. That's about where it ends. But for autistic people, it's much more uh, pronounced than that. Um, it's, it's so bad that sometimes people actually will not go to do the thing because they know that they can't handle it. Um, also, they want to leave early. They will leave early. And I'll give one example that's the biggest one in my life is when I go to a music festival, which is usually two or three days, sometimes four days long. That is a perfect example of an overstimulating environment. But, you know, music is my thing. And I put up with the suffering afterwards but basically it is so bad that the, the the day that i'm leaving i don't even want to talk to anyone i don't want to walk around move around i just want to go i get in my car and i can't even listen to music i can't even listen to music and that's something that you know that's my favorite thing in the world i love loud music but i cannot listen to music after i'm leaving a music festival and i don't like to talk to people i just i don't even sit up straight in my car seat i just kind of lay back i rest my head against the seat the headrest and i just barely <laughs> operate my vehicle 
And, you know, it's, it's so bad that I fill up my tank before I get to the music festival so that when I leave, I have a full tank. I can go straight home. I don't have to talk to anybody. I don't have to stop anywhere. And then <laughs> when I get home, I just dump all my bags on the floor. I plop my butt on the couch. I don't do anything. I can't cook food. I just, just know. I'm down for the count. I usually end up taking a nap. Um, I sleep that night for probably 10 hours, 10, 11 hours. And then the next day, I still don't do anything. I don't want to be around people. I don't even listen to music. I don't want to cook. <laughs> it's like an extension of the first day, only not quite as bad, but still bad. Um, and I don't put anything on my calendar for the next three to four days after. That's how long it takes me to come back to normal, to the point where I can move around, to the point where I can um, talk to people again. So it's it knocks everything out of me. But like I said, it's worth it to me because Music is my thing. Festivals are my thing because I'm in nature. They're very healing. Um, I get to see the people that are, you know, I consider them my, my, um, you know, family in a way because it's, uh, they're all accepting. I've been accepted there more than any other group of people in my life. And that's all. I'm going on a tangent. I just wanted to explain the difference between how introverts are and how autistic people are when it comes to overstimulating environments. So now the next category I'm going to go over is executive dysfunction. So here are some examples of what executive dysfunction means. You will have difficulty keeping up with daily things that everybody does, or I should say everybody should do. Um, there's a lot of these on, in this list. Um, one of them is personal hygiene, and this ties in with the last example where I sometimes just can't even take a shower for a day or two after I am that worn out. So, you know, personal hygiene is something that, you know, it's a sign that you're healthy when you want to take a shower or maybe a couple a day. But if you can't bring yourself to take a shower, no, this kind of goes off into a different level of like, you know, I, I don't mean to say that I go weeks without a shower. I'm just saying that it becomes hard. It becomes a struggle. It's kind of like how when people are depressed, they can't get out of bed. They're certainly not going to take a shower. So when those things start to fail, that is when executive dysfunction is, is a thing in your life. And you also don't want to clean. You don't want to do organization you don't really take care of your health very well. And I'm going to make a note about that because, um, as you know, this is a channel or this is a podcast about health. And health has always been important to me. Um, th this is one of the things that I um, struggle in some ways with. Like, I don't make doctor's appointments unless I absolutely have to. So that's another one that you have difficulty making appointments. Um, but I do things for my health that are easy for me, but that doesn't mean that I do all of the things that I should do because executive dysfunction. <laughs> Another thing that is an example of this is being tardy a lot. So if you're always late, um, also on the flip side of that, some autistic people 
and I'm one of them, become extra time sensitive. So this makes them early for everything. And this is almost like an OCD kind of thing, like where I, it, I get right down to the minute. Like I, I write down what time do I need to be there? That means I have to give myself 10 minutes of space between. And that means I have to be in the town or near the place at this time. And that means I need to leave my house at this time. And that means I need to start getting ready at this time. I get down, like I'm organizational to, you know, to the bone when it comes to that sort of thing. But everybody's on a different, you know, spectrum of this. You might be super late, you might be super early. Um, struggles with finding and keeping employment is another sign of executive dysfunction and this is a big one with autistic people. And to keep this a little short because I know I'm talking a lot about a lot of these things but finding and keeping employment is a huge deal for autistic people. I read recently and this statistic changes depending on where you look but um, it's over half of autistic people either are unemployed or only work part-time. And my employment history has been absolutely horrible. I have had like 13, 14 jobs in my life. I have had many periods where I didn't work at all. Um, so there's that, <laughs> but I'll just keep it there. So the next category that I'm gonna talk about is fine motor skills or physical body issues, things to do with your, your body. So some examples of this are having trouble with good handwriting. So if you if if you have messy handwriting, you know things like that. Trouble tying your shoes, um, clumsiness, trouble walking in a smooth rhythmic way. Um, this also ties in with playing sports. If you're not coordinated, you're not going to be good at sports. Um, difficulty keeping your balance. All sorts of things related to the body are just awkward. <laughs> so. That's a big one. Another category is repetitive behaviors. So these are strictly things for autism, I believe. Um, some examples of these would be stimming, which is self-stimulation activities. And then there's a million of these. There's um, the ones that you probably heard of are rocking back and forth, rocking side to side, twirling your hair on your finger, biting your lips, biting your cheeks, rubbing your fingers together, picking at your skin. There are almost as many stims as there are people. Everybody has their own and I've probably had 30 to 40 of them in my life and, and I still do them and sometimes I do two or three at a time. And it's just a, from the way I understand it, is it's just a way to offset the constant anxiety. It's a way to relieve the anxiety um, and also to be moving. Um, so it's, you, you gotta be moving all the time. You know, you've probably seen people that sit with their legs bouncing up and down a lot. And I've always done that. And I thought that's normal, <laughs> but it's not really normal. <laughs> so some other repetitive behaviors are repeating words or phrases, repetitive body movements, like hand flapping and hand flapping is a big one, especially for children, repetitive daily routines. And daily routines are a big deal for autistic people. Um, changes to those routines often causes upset, often causes a lot of anxiety. 
And this might be, in fact, I think this is why I am kind of obsessed with daily routines. I have to have my morning routine. I have to have my nighttime routine at least. And, you know, they're very healthy. They're very good for you, especially when it comes to health, because, you know, you want to have, like I say, you know, it's like a common th phrase, you are what you repeatedly do. And so if you have healthy daily routines in the morning and at night, then you're going to have a healthy lifestyle. And that's, that's where that all comes from. So that's probably why I'm really obsessed with, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with health anyway, but daily routines are the way to build that healthy lifestyle. So when that gets knocked out of whack, that can be very, very distressing for autistic people. And this is another reason why traveling is stressful for autistic people. Um, as much as I love it, I, I love to travel, but I don't, I do not love how I can't do my daily routines. I don't like having to get up at a weird time and, and jump into things that, you know, just random things. I want to be able to have some normality in my life. Um, and that also, that's also why um, music festivals are draining on me because there is no routine at all. I might go to bed at 4 a.m. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't get to eat the foods that I want to eat. So it's, it's a good thing. I don't think I could handle a music festival that was more than four days long. So now I'm gonna move on to the next category, which is communication difficulties. This is a big one for autistic people. So the examples of this, one of them is missed social cues. So that would mean if somebody's talking to you and they're saying things to get you to say or do things but you don't pick up on it and you just keep on whatever that's you missed the cue misunderstandings this is a big one this has always 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 been a thing for me misunderstandings due to different styles of communication and information processing so that's another one that i could probably talk a lot about but Basically, you know, you, you say something and the other person says something and you say something and it's, there's, it's like the game of telephone, only you're saying everything out loud to their face, but yet it's almost like you're speaking another language. And, and they might say to you things like, that's what you focused on out of that sentence? Or, you know, that wasn't the point. How, what are you talking about? You know, um, so many misunderstandings. Um, another example is that autistic people prefer written communication as opposed to verbal. Some cannot do verbal at all and will actually go mute in stressful situations. This is called selective mutism. And a lot of autistic people are mute all the time. And that's what they call nonverbal. Those are the people that need a lot of support. Obviously, they can't do a lot of things that... Um, the other autistic people can do, but basically, you know, this has happened to me as well. I've had many moments in my childhood and even into my teenage years where I simply couldn't speak. I just, I mean, I, I knew what I should say, but nothing came out and I couldn't, I just, there's no explanation, just can't say it. And that's mutism. And so that's one of the problems that autistic people have. Um, and this, there's uh, 
many autistic people will get perceived as being cold due to lack of emotional skills. Cold meaning, you know, they're not compa- I don't want to say compassionate because I'm compassionate, but there's moments where people will expect you to say or do certain things in an emotional sense, but you just lack the skills and don't do it. But it doesn't mean that you... Uh, that's another subject anyway, but basically we, we get perceived as being cold a lot and uncaring. And another thing that autistic people tend to, they tend to be bluntly honest to the point of appearing rude. So we can appear as cold and rude and it's, and here's another example of how the communication styles are different. We have no way of communicating to you that we are not rude. We just see that why would we lie about this? Why would, you know, we think that people that say things that they don't mean or lie or are deceitful, we think that's rude. But they think that we're rude because we're being honest. And so that gets us into a lot of trouble as well. So uh, autistic people tend to be quiet unless they are talking about a subject that they are passionate about. So autistic people will most likely, um, you, you might think that they're shy, but it's not really shyness. It's just that, you know, we don't want to talk about things that we're not passionate about. We're not, we don't want to talk about things that don't matter. And when I say don't matter, see, somebody might think that that's rude because, you know, I might think that, why does it matter what this person that you know did this morning, you know? But a lot of neurotypical people will talk about anything, you know, for a long time and we just get drained, instantly drained. And it sounds horrible, but it's our brains. We can't process the information. We can't, we need to be passionate about something. We need to be interested in something. We need to have it relate to what we are talking about and this is kind of a selfish thing but you know autistic people are more into their internal world we can relate to things that relate to us we can't you know talk about subjects that are not um related to us and not interesting to us of course we like to learn but we want to be passionate about the things that we're learning about and so this is another reason why autistic children will struggle in school unless they're super passionate about the subject. Um, <laughs> this next example is you're gonna be like, yeah, yeah, okay, so over-explaining due to past misunderstandings. Um, I, I do this all the time. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> I just feel the need to keep on explaining because if I just say one sentence and stop there, I'm leaving so much in up to interpretation and I am 99% sure that you're not going to know what I mean unless I keep explaining it until I've said it in every way that I can possibly say it. And this is good in some situations, of course, but it's not good if somebody doesn't want to listen to somebody ramble. <laughs> so on that note, I'm going to move on to the next one. The next category is special interests. And this actually ties in a little bit with the thing that I just said about talking about passionate subjects, subjects that we're passionate about. Special interests are otherwise known as obsessions. 
Uh, now, a lot of people are, you know, they, they say I'm obsessed with this, whatever, okay. But you're probably not, you probably don't get it because autism obs obsessions are to the point where it takes over their life. Um, it's where, you know, you can hop on a computer and dive into a rabbit hole a thousand miles deep, a thousand miles wide, and you're in that rabbit hole for eight, nine hours easily. Um, and then, whoa, where'd the time go? Um, okay, I'm gonna have to save all of these websites that I found. I'm gonna have to print them off on my printer and have them in a, put them in a binder so I can look at them anytime I know, I can know where they are. I have lists of all of these resources where I can learn about this obsession. And then the next day, you're right back at it and it gets even deeper. And then you start other parts of your life, you know, you have to talk about it all the time. You start buying things about this obsession. You have to find people online that are also obsessed with this thing. It's everything. It's literally just your whole life. And thankfully, these things don't last very long. Um, I mean, I've had some last for about a year, but sometimes they only last a day or two. So thankfully, it's not like, <laughs> you know, we, I, we get things done if we have to. Um, but it's a struggle. It's a huge struggle for me when I have an obsession to get work done or to even, you know, um, do cooking. And here's another example of how these are obsessions where, you know, I would rather watch videos about this subject that I'm obsessed with than eat or go to the bathroom. And sometimes I'm like, it's dark. When did the sun go down? I didn't eat dinner. I didn't, I haven't went to the bathroom in eight hours. You know, it gets to be like that. Um, and so these obsessions involve the, it's like a compulsion. It's a compulsion to learn every single detail about this thing. So, um, we're also prone to info dumping onto others about their favorite subjects, which is what I said about we can't just keep it to ourselves. We have to find other people that are also obsessed with this. We have to actually tell people about this. And once we start, remember how I said, that's when we don't want to stop talking. The floodgates have opened and you're going to learn everything that we want you to learn about this thing. <laughs> and due to the social cues that we can't pick up on, we just keep going. We don't know when to stop because we just want you to know this information. That's what it is. Um, so autistic people also have a lack of interest in other topics that are not their favorite subjects. So we have a really narrow focus on these special interests. And this is also ties in with the thing where, you know, we don't want to talk about things that aren't interesting to us. And if it's not our special interest, especially, oh my gosh, but if it is, <laughs> it, this is why autistic people often need to find other people that are equally as obsessed with this interest as they are so that they can both talk with each other and not, they're not, you know, making some poor person suffer <laughs> that doesn't care. All right, I've got one more category to go over, and that is developmental delays. So some examples of this would be maybe you live at home for an extra long time. Like, you know, most people when they reach adulthood, they 
want to move out of their parents' house. But most autistic people are not in a hurry to get out. They, they often don't feel like they are an adult yet. And this was me. I lived at home until I was 26. Um, these um, autistic people may also be slower to do other adult things like start dating. When I was in school, all of my friends, well, that's a whole other subject, but they were dating guys, they were having sex already, and I was just like, um, okay, I'm just gonna go home and listen to music. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with sex, you know, and it took a long time until I was, and that's the developmental delay of, um, you know, and also work too. I struggled with work. All of the things that make somebody an adult are hard for autistic people, basically. Um, and all, going back even younger, you may take longer to learn things like riding a bike or tying your shoes. And a big sign for me was that I didn't, you know, how did nobody pick up on this at the time? But I was the last child to learn how to ride a bike and tie my shoes. And I was taught by my friends, not my mom. You know, I was taught by people that were my age that already had been doing these things and they're like okay we you have to do this and i'm like i don't know how you know so I, that's that's a sign that's a sign as well um so moving on to the next section of this episode i'm going to talk about if you heard anything that i've mentioned so far you might suspect that you might be autistic as well if you've gotten this far you probably can relate to a lot of this and so I'm going to talk a little bit next about what to do about that. If you want to explore this subject further, there are many ways to get more information. Um, you can start by taking some online assessments, but keep in mind that these, uh, these tests are not designed to diagnose. They're only to help you learn about yourself to see if you might want to pursue a formal diagnosis. Um, so you can search for autism tests online um and find a lot of them but the one that i'm going to recommend is it's the raads-r test and i'm going to leave a link for that in the show notes um that's one that i took and i took a lot of them actually but this one particularly is respected by um you know psychologists and whatnot um so basically i got a pretty high score on it and i'm like i brought it to my therapist and i'm like I think I'm autistic and then you know I, I bought a couple books there's a, there's a lot of great books out there if you want to learn about autism the best one that I have read which was also recommended to me by the the psychologist who tested me is unmasking autism by Devin Price and I'm almost done reading this book it's amazing um, I highly recommend buying this if you suspect that you're autistic or if you have a partner who's autistic and you want to understand them more if you have any family members or close friends that are autistic I highly recommend this book it'll help you to know what's going on with them you know like it'll help you relate to them better so if you do think that you might be on the, the spectrum and you want to get a diagnosis I, I highly recommend doing a lot of research first um, because a lot of autistic people actually accept 
if you want to self-diagnose yourself, which means if you've taken that test, a couple of them, and you scored high on all of them, and you research and you talk to people that have di- that that pe- people that have autism, and you find that wow, all of these things that these people have, I struggle with that too. I relate to this. It's like I said it. I could have said that myself. It's like they're me. If that's how you feel when you talk to people who have autism, then most likely you are. And a lot of them say, you know, we understand that it's hard to get a diagnosis. So if you want to self-diagnose, we will accept that. Because what it really comes down to is having the same experiences. They call it the lived experience, where you have experience living as this type of brain neurotype. You experience all these problems, you know what it's like, and that's enough. You know, that's enough for many people. But, so here's the thing. Getting a diagnosis can be difficult. It can be costly. A lot of people don't have insurance. A lot of people's insurance might not cover it. And here is the kicker. A lot of these places have waiting lists that are over two years long. And, you know, a lot lot of these costs are a couple thousand dollars if you can't pay. I mean, if you have to pay out of pocket. And so it's very, very hard, you know, from what I've heard, to, to get a diagnosis. It was very easy for me, but I think I just got lucky. I somehow was able to jump the line because my therapist told me to get up early in the morning, which was awful, but it was worth it because they got me on a list sooner and then there was a cancellation and that cancellation opened a spot and somehow, I don't know how, but I got in within a couple of months actually. So I didn't have to wait, but most places do have a two year long waiting list from what I've heard. So um, if you want to pursue this, be prepared for that. Um, so basically what you have to do is get a referral from your therapist, mental health practitioner. If you are already in therapy, they should be able to help you. If you're not currently in therapy, it might be a good idea to start. You know, many people avoid mental health services simply because they don't think that they're necessary. But I firmly believe that everyone should try therapy at least once if your insurance covers it. Or, you know, if you have to pay out of pocket, if you have the cash. Because a lot of people might think that they're fine and even it's it gives you something like, what's the word I'm thinking of? To have someone from the outside give an objective um, understanding of you and maybe point things out to you and just to give you someone to talk to. I just highly recommend therapy for everybody. So... Um, there's a lot of pros and cons of getting a diagnosis, and since I have first-hand experience with this, I want to share my perspective. As an adult, getting a diagnosis is a personal choice, and your reason for getting one might be different, but I'm going to go over the pros and cons. So, the pros of getting a diagnosis, if you do have autism and you do realize that, wow, you know, this sounds like it fits me, your life will suddenly finally make sense. So this is a common sentiment among late diagnosed autistics and a diagnosis is like a relief to many of these people because they we always knew we were different but we didn't know why. And once you have a name for it, all of the pieces fall into place because the more you learn about it, the more aha moments you will have that will explain everything about your life. So for me personally, the way I struggled socially, the way I struggled with work, 
the way I struggled in just um, developing and some of the things that I do, the ways that I behave, and I was judged for it. I was um, teased from the kids in school. I always struggled with female friendships in particular, and that's another thing too, is a lot of autistic people, women, will have problems with other women. It's just a common thing. So that started to make sense. Another um, pro to getting a diagnosis is that you will be entitled to reasonable accommodations at your job. So with a diagnosis, you'll be able to ask your job to work with you to make your experience better. This will help you become a better employee, which is what you would think they would want. So, um, you know, for example, you might be allowed to wear noise canceling headphones if it's too loud, or you might be able to have the lights dimmed at your workstation or have your hours reduced if you are feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling burnt out and need extra time off. You know, that's something that some jobs hopefully will be able to work with you on. Um, basically, you are legally entitled to ask for those things. Doesn't mean that they're all going to be able to give it to you, though. Um, another pro is that you will be able to tell others why you are the way you are. So if you choose to disclose your diagnosis to those in your life, you can help them better understand you. A big part of why autism causes so many struggles is because others don't understand and they judge you based on false information. And then you can educate them, which will help everyone involved to avoid misunderstandings. And this is exactly why I did this podcast episode, why I wrote the blog post, because this was a big one. I, I feel like I need to advocate. There's not a lot of people out there that are advocating for autism, especially as it pertains to adults. So if you want others to understand you a little easier, then th this is a great reason to get a diagnosis so that you can actually say, you know, this psychologist <laughs> said, you know, I'm not just making this up anymore. Um, another pro is that you might be able to get on disability if you want to. So there are separate pros and cons to getting on disability, um, but the possibility is there if you need it. It might be difficult to get accepted, but, you know, I know people that have been successful and they're happy um, because the area of work is a huge problem for autistics, like I said. So this might be a good option for you if you struggle excessively. So now there are some cons to getting a diagnosis. And the first one is that you, you might find that others still don't treat you any better. Unfortunately, this is not a guarantee that others will accept you, but it will weed out the ones that are likely harmful for you to have in your life. So, you know, people might talk down to you, they might treat you like a child, they might say things like, but you don't look autistic, you know, or, or simply they might not know how to act around you. This is a risk that you have to decide if you want to take with each person in your life. And then the other con, like I said, is it's expensive and it's time intensive. Unless you have insurance that will cover the costs, like mine did, I was so lucky with that, it can be up to $5,000, I've heard, for an evaluation. And like I said, most testing facilities have a two-year-long waiting list, somewhere around there, some are more, some are less. Um, of course, this is going to depend on where you live and what country you're in. I'm in the United States, if that makes any difference. Um, I've heard that it's harder in other countries, and I've certainly recognized, or I've certainly experienced that myself, that I had an easier time compared to most people. 
But the process itself is also time intensive. So not only do you have to go to a therapist and get referred, and then you got to wait for it all to, you know, get put into place. Um, it usually involves at least three sessions with a few weeks in between each session. So um, first you're going to get an intake session where the psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever, is going to ask you a lot of questions. And, and then they schedule the actual testing, which takes two to four hours, depending on how many tests they want to do. And then a couple weeks after that, you get your um, results session. So, like I said, this will vary on what state, what country you're in, you know, things like that. But it seems to be the norm that it generally goes that way. So, I'm going to end this episode, uh, this podcast episode now by saying that um, as of 2022, um, the statistic is that one out of every 44 kids will have autism. And more adults are getting diagnosed every day, which means that we need awareness to spread if we want to live in a world where everyone is accepted and understood. So by sharing the facts and not spreading the lies, we can all live harmoniously together, despite our neurological differences. So I, um, if you've made it this far, thank you for listening and I really hope that you learned something and I really hope that I was able to help some people that might suspect that they are autistic. So thank you so much for joining me and don't forget to um, be on board for the next episode and thank you so much for listening and have a great week.